You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bobin Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is September 29th, 2021. Happy fall for everyone that experiences fall. I know in the Northeast, it's quite uh, beautiful and maybe in the Midwest, but I haven't experienced fall out in Colorado. Um, <laughs> maybe it's too and, cold. Like it's already 50 today. <laughs> I know it's getting, it's getting there. Um, it's, it's coming in head fast. Um, yes. I'll, I hope everyone's doing safe uh, and we're going to dive in today's, into today's episode. Um, but before we dive into the news and topic, we are going to be having another guest, uh, which, uh, we did tease in the last episode, uh, Omer Mufti is um is one of the product owners within pure uh working on sort of a database as a service that was actually recently announced so we're going to definitely talk about that a little bit um he's uh one of those guys that's worked at uh various different um uh, data service operations jobs one of the ones that we uh know he came from was dreamworks animation where he led sort of the adoption of site or liability engineering, uh, and developed and built a database as a service platform in DreamWorks Animation. So we're going to ask him a lot of questions, I'm sure, about his experience on that. Uh, he's also an avid Dodgers fan, so you know how you feel about that is up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we're really excited to have Umar on the show um, in, in just a bit here. But I think there's some cool news going on in the world of cloud-native storage, Bobbin. Yeah, so one of the things that uh, I saw Google announce this week was early access for backup for GKE. I think they're just getting ready for the cloud next event next month. So this is just one of the things that they announced. Uh, now, again, still in early access, but customers who are using GKE can use a, a data protection solution from Google that allows them to protect not just uh, your applications, but also the cluster state for GKE uh, into uh, an object store bucket and then restore it to the same or a different GKE cluster in the same or a different Google Cloud region. So customers who have all of your work workloads or Kubernetes clusters running in Google Cloud, this might be a solution for you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you have sort of a tool that's built into GKE, I mean, I know every time I, I spin up a GKE cluster, it's just stupid simple. So um, yep. <laughs> I think they've, they've done some really good tooling out there. I, wasn't there also part of that announcement was the uh, the file system support that supports replication across three availability zones in a region? Yeah, uh, that was, I think, yeah. I think that was more generic to Google Cloud. I, I like it obviously works with GKE, but I yeah. think it, it also like was focused around their NAS offering. Yeah, and I think for you know Kubernetes, like if you consume that, you get sort of some local high availability, but also with the backup product, you get some backup built into your uh, Kubernetes workload. So yeah, really cool stuff. Uh, what else has uh, been out there? Um, I know vSAN 
7 update 3 came out which has some which I only saw this morning so um, <laughs> I know we're, we're still diving into the details there uh, probably would be great to have someone on post VMworld to talk about uh, what's going on in that space uh, even in the Tanzu space I know you've, doing, you've been doing a lot of work there but I think they've added some uh, you know officially the file service capabilities the stretch clusters uh, for vSAN so really some cool stuff there yeah um, I'm looking forward to like VMworld session like deep dive sessions from some of the TMEs there uh, to like de- uh, look in, to learn more about these topics and see what new was in, what's new uh, in vSAN 7 update 3. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't uh, talk about the Portworx data services announcement uh, from Pure. Um, and that's near and dear to our hearts. But that's, um, you know, one of the most exciting things that we've been up to lately is really working on this sort of database as a service for Kubernetes. And um, we're actually going to have Omer, uh, who I mentioned, uh, the product owner of PDS come on and tell us really about his experience of why he started developing, you know, uh, Portworx data services or even before that database as a service at, at other companies, what drove him to go down that road. Um, so I'm super excited to talk more about this topic since it's. Yeah, and don't worry, uh, guys, like this is not going to be a sponsored episode. We, we, we are not going to spend the whole episode talking about Portworx data services, but it is a pretty, pretty cool announcement. Yeah, exactly. We like I said, we have to do it. We have to say it. Um, <laughs> and if you want to try it, you know, go for it. There's a sort of early access you can sign up for. Um, but Umer has a lot of experience beyond, you know, just his short tenure here at Pure. So um, we really want to dig into that. Uh, and that's going to be definitely more generic about, you know, uh, uh, just data services on Kubernetes and and why you try to do this for. Um, uh, an organization as sort of an as a service and and why it matters. So I think that's a good intro. Should we have Amir jump on? (laughs) Yep, let's do it. Let's, Let's bring him on. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So welcome, Umer. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Kubernetes Bytes. Um, I think Thank the audience you. is really excited about this topic. We're excited to have you on, especially since you're an LA Dodgers fan. You know, we're still, <laughs> we're over here in Boston on the other coast. Um, yeah, please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background with Kubernetes. Sure. Yeah. Um, excited to be on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, I'll, I'll actually talk about the Dodgers a little bit because uh, <laughs> as of as of this recording, uh, Dodgers are looking good and hopefully we'll come out <laughs> on top for the ninth consecutive year. Again, thank you for Mookie for that Mookie trade that really <laughs> out quite a bit. Um, so just a little bit about my background. Um, so and specifically around Kubernetes. So my Kubernetes story or journey actually kind of began in my last uh, job, which was at DreamWorks Animation. Um, interestingly enough, I actually uh, kind of go back a little bit before Kubernetes. So when I joined DreamWorks, I joined them in about 2014, or actually exactly 2014. And uh, I was hired there to be a, a database administrator for Cassandra. Mm-hmm. And um, in my previous, previous to DreamWorks, I had done some work on, I had a startup and we had, had kind of hacked at Cassandra to make it into like a real-time analytics database. Uh, so I had some fair amount of experience with Cassandra. 
And right around that time, DreamWorks was beginning a journey of moving into the microservices world, I think as a lot of companies were at that time, and and starting to think about databases outside of just Oracle. Up to mm -hmm. that point, they were just kind of sticking everything inside of Oracle schemas and not thinking about it too much. But uh, the the guy that ended up hiring me there had uh, had a really you know forward looking vision about the way sure. that <clears throat> that databases should be kind of thought of and more NoSQL and eventual consistency models and that sort of thing. So he, he was like, let's start with Cassandra. So they brought me on board. And within my sort of first, and this is January of 2014, right off the bat, um, it, like my first project there was like, let's figure out how to get Cassandra to run inside of a container. Mm -hmm. And at that time, containers didn't even mean Docker. So this is like <laughs> LXC days. This is like before, Got it. Uh this is like really super early. So obviously before even Kubernetes existed, right? So there was, there was no, there was no Kubernetes. Um, there was barely Docker. I think Docker, maybe Solomon had mentioned it or something at a previous. Yeah. He uh, was doing early yeah. demos, I guess, at PyCon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so about a month later, um, my boss, Ali, and I went to uh, the Scale Expo. I don't know if you know it here in Los Angeles. And um, it's like a Linux expo. And we, we just sat down over lunch and we're like, you know what? We should build a database as a service. We should think of Cassandra as a service to our team internally mm -hmm. uh, within, within DreamWorks. And, um, and so that kind of set me off on this like <laughs> eight-year journey of trying to make this happen. But um, so early on, again, this was sort of pre-Kubernetes. Pre we were experimenting with first LXC containers, then in Docker containers. Docker, when it first came out, it didn't, even Linux containers at the time didn't really have any notion of network namespaces or a lot of these sort of new primitives that we have to think about in terms of isolating uh, workloads inside of containers um, or just isolating those workloads generally. Uh, and so we kind of had to build a lot of that stuff from the ground up. Um, and then fast forward to the Kubernetes world, uh, maybe like a year later, 2015, I started seeing uh, Brendan Burns, you know, I think he, I, he was still at Google at the time. And, uh, you know, he had his project for Kubernetes and we were, we were literally like, oh, this is great. I can have somebody <laughs> manage the, orchestrate the containers for me. Cause that up to that, up to then we were, we had implemented what we call meatware, which okay. was okay. <laughs> us just a bunch of humans going in there and being human schedulers and saying, okay, this Docker container is going to run on this machine. And, right. and if that container goes down, then I'm going to start a Docker container on another machine and change IP addresses and manually move over, like copy the data over to this other physical machine. And so the notion that there might be something that could kind of orchestrate some of that work and take it away from humans was really uh, appealing to us back in 2015. Um, and so I was literally, um, I had built a system to pull down, um, pull down source code from, from Git and, and, uh, and compile it, build it in RPMs that we could deploy our own Kubernetes clusters. And literally by the time that the job would end up building, um, there would be more commits <laughs> on the <laughs> on the source code and like things would be would be broken and i had, i was just it was almost like it was like this this endless loop for about 
two months of just trying to compile and get like a stable build of, of Kubernetes. Finally, when I, when that happened, by the time I got like a, you know, some stable builds, I realized that it completely was missing any sort of notion of, um, I'll, I'll just say state, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, this is great if I want to, if I want to move a, a pod around, but what about if I need to save that data to, right. you know, somewhere? So I was like, so we basically completely scrapped Kubernetes for years and continued forth on our own. Our, we built our own platform and, um, and it wasn't until uh, the Portworks guys actually came to us a couple years later. Um, and I, this is actually kind of interesting. So the Portworks guys had come to us um, and said, hey, uh, we're, we're, we're building this thing called software-defined storage. We think it could help with your Docker containers. Again, this is before Kubernetes had stateful sets or any of this stuff. So we were right. still doing things in just raw Docker. and um, and so, uh, so yeah, so we started looking at, oh, software-defined storage. We can actually use this thing called Portworks to manage the data, this data storage behind our Docker containers outside of Kubernetes, just like on our, on our, on our bare metal machines. Um, and that kind of started us down the path of, as we kept uh, upgrading Portworks and started realizing that the Portworks <laughs> development effort itself was starting to move away from Docker and into the Kubernetes space. Uh, and every, all of the other Portworks customers, by the way, we were like customer number two for Portworks. We were like super early, but we started seeing, um, the, you know, the, the development effort move away from Docker and kind of, um, uh, sort of congeal around, uh, around Kubernetes. We're like, okay, right. maybe we need to look back into Kubernetes and by then stateful sets had been really, you know, had come out and that, that started us down what we thought was going to be, um, you know, an easy path to making app databases run on Kubernetes, but that, that's a whole nother story. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, I think because at that time, right, Docker Swarm and even Mesosphere at the time were sort of seemed like the front runners. And then once Kubernetes really matured, right, that it was pretty much uh, lights out, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and. So even Docker Swarm, like for us, Docker Swarm never made a lot of sense. Um, it seemed like it was more work than it was worth. Uh, Mesos, we actually were, we had, we had done some POCs with Mesos. We actually, I don't know if we, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this publicly, <laughs> but um, we did some work on kind of POCing uh, DCOS, uh, oh, yeah. comparing it with Kubernetes. We had, there were a number of issues that came up with um, with running Cassandra in DCOS that we actually basically determined that our own solution, our own platform that we had developed that was, um, you know, basically just raw Docker was actually superior than Mesos. And we started telling them, Hey, this is the Mesosphere guys. We'd meet with them and be like, this is, you guys have no notion of network namespacing at all. So if I need to run two Cassandra clusters on one, uh, on one node, one mm-hmm. server, I have to expose different ports and have some sort of port mapping. And I'm like, this is not going to scale if I have more than like two databases. Yeah, uh, I mean, you really, I, I at, when I was at Athena Health, we we originally went with Mesos uh, uh, and Mesosphere uh, because the maturity level it was at at the time. And the universe and the universe packages were 
you know, appealing for, you know, certainly they had, they had Kafka universe back in, mm-hmm. they had, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. And then I, I think we realized down the road as well that the universe packages were very, very opinionated. So it was hard to change things. You had to pin, you still had to pin, yeah. you know, certain things to nodes and that sort of, you know, yeah. defeated a lot of the purpose. And then, you know, our, our eyes wandered towards the Kubernetes yeah. <laughs> in the room. So. <laughs> the Mesosphere guys had actually asked us to start contributing our stuff and put that into the, like, basically we, they wanted us to become the the provider of some of these, you know, uh, frameworks or whatever. And in, in anyway, so it was, it was, but like you said, I mean, I think by then a lot of the, the industry was already starting to see that Kubernetes was going to be the path forward. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously, <laughs> I look at where we are a few years later. I mean, it's like conquered the world. So, um, you know, before Portworx came to you at DreamWorks um, or to that team that was building mm-hmm. this, did did you try to manage any of the state components yourself? Right there, there was there was some primitives still around at the time, and, yeah. and like you said, Portworx was early. But you know, did you try any other you know either solutions, open source, or you know? Pinning to host paths, like I've, yeah. I've heard so of all of those. <laughs> it, it, it was a lot of that. It was no, there was no um, solution from a vendor or anything that we were doing. We were just trying to figure out how to do it on our own. So it, yeah. basically the solution ended up being, um, it was a lot of um, host mounted volumes and then doing things around labeling of where those volumes. So on top of just the Docker, we had kind of built like a, a, a config man you know, we use config management to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to deploy out those, um, those containers. So <laughs> I'm going to get into a little bit of the weeds. Sorry. Um, it's okay. This is great. Yeah. We yeah, love yeah. that. <laughs> so, so the containers themselves were one thing, like we'd, we'd have our own, our own, uh, container images, but even within them, even those we wrapped in, um, in unit files. So we, you know, we were Red Hat shop okay. at, at DreamWorks. So everything was system D so we had our own unit files that we would effectively um, create on top of on top of a host. So there was like a unit file, and then we had like config config management that would not only go and create that unit file there on that host, but also uh, create a bunch of logical volumes and then configure the unit file to to use those logical volumes, so that when you did, for example, service, uh, you know, foo up or whatever it is it would automatically mount those um those volumes and it would be kind of pinned to that to that and and we'd also like inject like ip addresses in there so we at i I don't know how much i should say about their environment but basically there's a flat network um and so the idea being that any docker container that we had started anywhere the studio would have a dedicated ip address and that ip so then that container could be routed to from anywhere else in the studio. Um, and some of that thinking has gone into later, like the Calico guys, or who mm-hmm. turned into the Calico guys, had come to us again very early on. And and uh, what they were showing us that they were thinking about in terms of um, just, you know, just the project mm-hmm. and sort of their BGP solution, <laughs> it was a, real easy fit for us because we were like we do exactly this already except Mm -hmm. we use um we don't use bgp um we you know we we use a different protocol but other than that it's the exact same thing and we just set up our own quagga routers on every single one of our docker servers that manages the 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 networking layer so 
anyway, uh, that was that was sorry, I went on a, a networking tangent. That's <laughs> okay. We we ran exact almost the exact same thing, but with BGP really? and Athena Health. So yeah, oh. it was uh, we managed all the Quagga uh, configuration, everything with uh, Ansible, and it was you know I would say it worked great when it worked, uh, but it it definitely needed a constant maintenance. <laughs> yeah, I mean. For us, it actually worked great. Um, yeah. The only problem ever was just uh, tracking the allocation of subnets and making sure that, you know, hey, I'm standing up a new Quagga router over here. Let's make sure that the, the network that I'm assigning to it is, you know, unique inside of my, you know, we had like a slash 16 or something that managed like all the IPs for all of the, all of the containers. But anyway, on the storage side, the answer, the answer to your question is no. We never looked at sort of an automated or vendor solution. We, we, maybe we were naive or maybe we just never found it or didn't look hard enough, but it was always, we're just going to host mount uh, volumes. And yeah, um, that was pretty common, I feel like. <laughs> part of that also was we, we were doing everything on bare metal. So we didn't have any, um, we didn't have to worry about, like we felt like we could get away with, um, or we not even, we could get away with, we needed sort of that like line level speed. Um, you know, these were databases that were running inside um, uh, of these containers, and we always wanted we we had it. We had maybe a misconception that if we had any sort of software layer in there, that it might affect the the performance. Um, and then the Porks guys actually kind of, um, you know, <laughs> cleared that up for us. Like they would, you know, showed us <laughs> demos and. The great thing about some of the early stuff that, you know, Goo and the the other guys that the Portworks were showing us were around, like, um, you know, this can actually increase your performance. So first of all, you can tune the I/O profiles, and you can say, hey, I want to f-sync at, you know, I want to bundle up my f-syncs and send them at the at this rate, which was like eye-opening to us. But then also like parallelizing reads read requests across multiple nodes could actually you know, make your read requests faster than what we were doing by just hitting a single, you know, volume on, on that host. And so we're like, whoa, okay, this is, this, there's, there's something here. So in, so. in this journey of like going to as a service, uh, you, you, obviously you were responsible for Cassandra. Uh, were there other data services or databases that you were looking at too and doing all of this in parallel? So you had to figure mm -hmm. out how to run all of those on the same bare metal servers or was this like, oh, let's try Cassandra first. If we figure that out, we can uh, extrapolate and, and bring in other apps as well. Yeah, very good question. Um, so um, yes, there were many data services uh, there. So we started with Cassandra. That was kind of, we figured if we could prove out that Cassandra ran in, in a container um, and sort of on demand, then we could probably do that for other things. So the sort of the early, Working from working backwards, as I mentioned, we kind of had a platform to automate the stuff with config mm -hmm. management and unit files and stuff. So what we wanted to do, or what we what we thought was the right way, was um, the thing that's ultimately getting deployed, the thing that's containerized. Mm -hmm. um, let's treat that as a commodity and not care whether that thing happens to be Cassandra or happens to be Elasticsearch or happens to be um, Mongo or you know. The, in total, there were like over 10 different data services that we ended up doing this for. Um, so it's like, let's not care about what it is that we're deploying. Uh, if we say that, if we all commonly agree that 
Elasticsearch is going to behave the same way or Cassandra is going to behave the same way, then all we need to worry, then they can, then all those things can basically be deployed using the same automation. So that same template that we had for the unit file could be used. The same config management tool that we had that, um, that would create the files instead of the volumes and all that other higher level automation we could just plug into. And so then the core of our work started turning into, okay, what is that common set of um, interface, if you will, or uh, like, you know, what is the specification for that, for that application uh, in order for it to be um, deployed using the other tooling? So we basically created what we called, um, there was an internal, internal project at DreamWorks um, called Stella. And so we basically created this, this Stella image specification. And so we knew if, if the Elasticsearch image met that specification, then it could use the rest of the tooling. Or if Cassandra met that specification, it could use the rest of the tooling. So yeah, we ended up uh, blowing out beyond just Cassandra into many, many different data services. Got it. Got it. I, I think I think a natural question I have is, <clears throat> you know, database as a service or getting a production database in uh, in Kubernetes takes a lot of moving parts, right? We, you've gone into networking, you've got a persistent storage, you've gone into uh, configuration, right? There's a lot of things to do here. Uh, and I think that's, I, I think we're getting a good sense of, you know, of why, you know, building a service like this mattered to your team at DreamWorks. But I, but I, I think the question here is, you know, if you were thinking about running production level, production grade databases, on your Kubernetes clusters, say, you know, fast forward today, a lot of organizations are, are running Kubernetes today. A lot, a lot mm -hmm. of them are running stateless components and stateless yeah. services, sure. and they want to add uh, databases. Do they go the route of building their own database as a service, right? Finding all those layers and what works for them, or, or do they look for sort of a solution like you built at DreamWorks? You know, uh, I think, I don't know how long it took you to to go from conception, it sounds like around 2013 or so, or so to, <laughs> yeah. to a, a workable yeah. Stella in production. But I, I'd love yeah. to hear your, your opinion there. Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I only touched on sort of like the, the, the tip of the iceberg on <laughs> what, what we ultimately found out is like even harder than just figuring out networking and storage, to be honest with you, some of that stuff. Um, some of that stuff in the end ends up being the easy part. Um, and, and most of that journey that I was talking about was even before we got to Kubernetes. So that was just in, in Docker, right? right. Um, and uh, there's some added complications, which I'll get to in Kubernetes, but there's also tooling and primitives and that sort of stuff that made it easy, like, I don't want to say easier, but made it possible to accomplish in Kubernetes some, uh, to automate some of the things that we were doing again as meatware in, at DreamWorks. And so, um, so the first thing is, is the, the first thing like we should really talk about when we're talking about databases and, you know, we thought early on, oh, okay, the, there's this notion of, um, of a stateful set that, that mm -hmm. Kubernetes has now. And so that's going to solve all of our problems with state. And what we quickly realized is that was not true. And Portworks had come along and done a great job with software defined storage and did answer the problem of state of state where I'm going to save my data. But what I, or what our team discovered is that that's not the hard part about running a database in Kubernetes. <laughs> um, 
the, the hard part is, is that most of these database applications are actually distributed applications. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, if you look at when people are talking about pods or talking about containers or images, it's always on this notion that the image that I'm building fully encapsulates an entire application, right? It's like, okay, if I want to, if I want to run Nginx, I just deploy this Nginx container and I have a fully running Nginx, um, you know, pod or container that's running here. And that's great. But databases aren't like that. Databases, for the most part, are distributed systems. And so when I'm talking about Cassandra, I'm not talking about a Cassandra container or a Cassandra pod. I'm talking about three of them running or seven of them running. And how do they communicate with one another? Mm -hmm. And how do they know that when, if a pod starts, and this is where Kubernetes makes things hard, right? Is this notion of like um, this ephemeral nature of your pods where when we were in our old raw Docker system, we didn't have to worry about IPs changing yep. or things moving from one server to another or any of that stuff. But we'll come to that. Um, but in, in any case, so if, if I have a three-node Cassandra cluster and I want to scale it to five nodes, how do those two new nodes know where the other three nodes live? How do the other three nodes that already were there, how do they know that the nodes that are joining, you know, that they should be part of the cluster? Or in a more likely scenario, let's say I had a five-node Cassandra cluster, one pod crashes, Kubernetes reschedules it and brings it back up. How do I know that that new node that's joining is the same node that crashed earlier and not right. just a new node that's... So this whole notion of like cluster membership and failure detection um, for, for distributed applications, those questions were really hard to be, begin with. To Like, as you know, like the, the two hardest problems in, in computer science are naming variables and, and, <laughs> and distributed systems, right? Nice. <laughs> so it's like, these are, these are not easy things to solve outside of Kubernetes and then trying to containerize these applications and figure out how do I deploy them in, in a, in a, in a, you know, robust manner inside of Kubernetes is, is, is really where the, where the, the challenges and, and this is where you have to get in at the application level and understand what the applications are doing. So mm -hmm. what I was just describing about with the Cassandra cluster membership, that and that those questions are answered completely differently for Elasticsearch or for Postgres or for Couchbase or for like Kafka has, you know, their own, their own system. So um, like there has to be an application level understanding for, for each one of these things and, and whatever system you build and whatever images you, you build have to be aware of what is specific to Cassandra and how do I, <clears throat> How do I re-replicate the data in a Cassandra cluster? How do I repartition data in Kafka and, and those and those types of things? So uh, I forget what the question was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if the question was, do do you want to handle this stuff yourself? Um, you know, it's it's a lot it's a lot to think about. And if you maybe just have one database that you care about and you have the expertise in house to both know at the application level what it means to repartition your Kafka data and also at the Kubernetes level where you know how to create that automation, whether it be as an operator or, you know, just building the images and uh, all that stuff, then, you know, I would say you are in the minority. Um, 
they're <laughs> yeah, only a few big organizations online. have those kinds of resources, right? To dedicate to right. each different uh, data yeah. I mean, it, it, It's a Venn diagram, right? And the overlap of sort of the Kubernetes expertise and the, the database expertise, um, you know, the, that overlap, I, unfortunately, I don't think is, is, is that great in volume. Yeah, not very large. I mean, that that's definitely, uh, I think what we've seen in our day jobs is, you know, organizations are, are you know, using Kubernetes as a de facto, uh, you know, container orchestrator, but there's still many of those are early days in, in considering, okay, if I, if I want to run my staple things on there, like the Cassandra and Kafka and Elasticsearch that you're talking about, that's a whole new set of of concerns, right? And we were the question was really around like what what other things besides persistent storage would you um, really be need to consider to run a production database? And you've answered a lot of these. And I think one of the important <laughs> the important one I heard was you know stateful sets didn't fully solve the problem because it was it was a Kubernetes level abstraction and and you need that apple application level integration. Um, I think a follow up to that would be you know, now that operators are around, does that mm -hmm. help in this story, right? Or are there still, you know, things that you, you know, you would build into a database as a service that even operators don't really kind of target? For sure. Yeah. So, uh, so for sure, operators help. Um, and, but they're also required because of the added complications that Kubernetes has. Like I was saying, with that ephemeral nature of a pod, it can be reassigned a new IP at any time. So. Mm -hmm. You know, now you have to code for that. And the only place to code for that and have that logic would be in an operator. Um, and we'll, we'll come to that in a second. I, I just want to point out, like, there are other complications besides just, um, you know, we talk about cl cluster membership and failure detection there. And I don't, I, I don't need to go into detail about them, but like the other really big thing that's complicated with these distributed applications um, and again, it is because they're distributed, not because they're stateful, but because they're distributed. My, uh, there's this notion of ingress and I use ingress with like a lowercase I, not a capital I, not like the ingress <laughs> object in Kubernetes, Sure. but just the, the notion of, of directing traffic into your, into your pod. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because again, these things are distributed systems. So imagine, uh, let's talk about a Postgres cluster, for example. So maybe you've got. Um, you've got a, uh, three, three pods that are running that are a Postgres cluster. One of them is a, is a primary and the two of them are replicas, right? So from a client perspective, um, when you're writing data or when you're using that Postgres cluster, you need to send your write requests to the primary, right? You can't send your, you know, insert values into, into your, into your secondary or into your replica because mm -hmm. it it'll fail. So you have to know how to, how to find that primary. Um, likewise, if, you, if it's a read request, you could maybe send it to any of those three, but lot, most, most of the time you would want to purposely send it to a replica because you want to offload the, you know, offload the, the traffic from the primary. So, so there's this notion of, of being able to direct traffic into specific nodes in your, in your distributed application. And that's something that the native Kubernetes um, primitives don't allow for right now, right? They, you've got a notion of a service, which is backed by many pods. Mm -hmm. um, and, but what it's really going to do is it's going to load balance the traffic yeah. between, 
your three Postgres pods, which is really completely useless to for Postgres or for any database or for any distributed application. Um, and so the way you get around that uh, is by <clears throat> is by creating your own custom resources or your own objects in 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 Kubernetes to handle that logic, both mm -hmm. but to create the the primitive, the the custom resource itself, and then also the logic of how this thing should behave. So that's the that's the operator, right? So you've got your CRD and you've got your controller that's handling all the logic. So for sure, you need you need at a minimum if you were going to create this system on your by yourself, you would at a minimum need to use operators to solve some of these problems. Um, and to their credit, a lot of these database vendors, a lot of these ISVs um, realize that also and have started um, creating, creating their own operators. Um, you know, certainly Crunchy's got one for, for Postgres. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, data stacks just moved from Helm to an operator for, uh, for their gates and raw as well. Yeah, I, I, side note, um, I was very um, involved in the, the community for, for Datastax and the, the Cassandra operator development. Awesome. Um, been working with that team for some time as well. Um, uh, honestly, uh, offering a lot of some of the, the lessons learned that we had at DreamWorks from the, the Stella development and the Stella operators that we had built and kind of helping, trying to guide, mm -hmm. you know, some of the, how do you handle some of these things? <clears throat> in, yeah, which uh, I imagine could be an entire podcast episode in itself. <laughs> <laughs> the lessons learned. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I, you know, learning. I, you know, because we're getting towards the end of our, our time here, I wanted yeah. to sort of, um, uh, ask one more question, which is, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of components that go into database as a service. There's, you know, the deployment, the administrative tasks, the how do you have clients, the ingress, the managing distributed systems and members. And, you know, it is a very complex, um, you know, uh, orchestration of, of things. And so yeah. as a team, and maybe this, maybe this relates back to your original decision of why you chose to go on this eight or nine year journey that you've been on of, <laughs> of why did you decide that this was, um, a, a good fit for your teams at DreamWorks and why would an organization or a team, you know, gravitate towards a database as a service technology rather than trying to figure out all these Kubernetes primitives or using operators? Yeah, for sure. So at DreamWorks, the, the goal really was to provide a platform for our developers, right? We, we didn't expect our application developers, the ones developing out the microservices to to either know anything about databases or to care where they were run, where they were running, right? It should have just been abstracted from them. All they care about at the end of the day is a connection string, right? I'm a I'm developing a new microservice. It's got a it's got a couch-based backend. Just tell me what I can connect to and where yep. I can insert my data. The ops team, the DBAs, you guys figure out how to keep it running and make sure it scales and do all that stuff. So that was that was the vision at DreamWorks um, is just to provide a connection string complete abstraction for developers. Here's a platform and you know that you can uh, spin it up on demand with an API, whatever it is, um, or go to UI and, and you've got a database and here's your connection string and, and, and that's it. And so that it's, it's the easy button for them. Got right. It. And, um, and what, um, you know, what I've had a great relationship with the Portworx guys as I mentioned over the years, and in having shown them what we 
you know, what we had built at DreamWorks, like, I think they immediately got that there was an application for, you know, for all this hard work that we had done. Um, and so, you know, my work, my work here is continuing in, in solving all those hard problems and making that available. And like, here, we think, we think all developers, we think, you know, regardless of where you work or whatever, whatever even the size of your, your, your business is, if you're a startup and, and you're a developer, if you're developing an iPhone app and all you care about is a database endpoint, or if you're in a big multinational telco and you're an application developer um, and all you want to focus on is your, is your application and you just need somewhere to insert data, like that's a common thing across, across organizations of, of different levels of sophistication and market size and firmographic mm -hmm you know, segmentation or whatever, right? It's, 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 it's a common need. And so um, really the idea is like, okay, let's, let's let developers just focus about their applications in the same way as I went, as I went through like all that complicated stuff, it becomes obvious. Like if you want to solve those problems yourself, sure, you could, you might be able to come up with an implementation. It might be naive. It might be sophisticated, but keeping that implementation, um, you know, have it evolve over time, make sure that when version 1.22 of Kubernetes comes yeah. out, it doesn't, it doesn't break. Or when Cassandra version 4.0 comes out, um, as it did, like the way the changes that they made in their architecture don't break your automation. In the same way, you know, like, hopefully people know that like, um, like these are hard problems and you need a dedicated team that's that's constantly answering these questions and responding to them in the same way. Like, sure, I could build my own password authentication system for my application. Why not? But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounds easy, right? <laughs> or, you know, I can understand that when I start keeping passwords and storing them and I start getting all sorts of compliance issues and I have to like, there's so many things that I need to worry about. I'm like, oh crap, maybe I should just let somebody else you know, do the heavy lifting here. Yeah, I think those are those are words of wisdom to end on, I think, here is let someone else worry about it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, back I think off it's somebody else's front office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think it really, uh, you know, shows that, you know, these these systems of running stable components on Kubernetes are are complex, you know, hard to manage. You have to continue to maintain them. And, you know, if you're running a single database or those kind of things, like, sure. But once you start scaling and you're, you're running distributed systems, like having that easy button is so important. So I've learned a lot today, uh, Omer, and it's been it's been such a pleasure to have you on. on Sorry for blabbing on so much. Yeah, these like details are really important. And you can only talk about these if you have gone through the process, right? As you said, it, take, it took you like seven years to build a database as a service platform that you felt was easy enough to, for use like by developers who can just use a UI, use a CLI, ask for a connection string, and that's all they care about. So it, it takes time for every enterprise to reach this point. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amir, um, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, until next time. Sure. Let me know if you wanna, want me to come back for that deep dive on uh, no. lessons learned I think lessons we might learned. have to have you on here yeah <laughs> alright it's really great talking to you guys thank you so much thanks so much alright take care alright bye
Well, that was, I think, uh, fantastic. I don't know about you, Bobbin, but I really enjoyed that conversation with the mayor. Um, you know, as we have more guests on the show, uh, whether we work with them for long periods of time, short periods of time, or not at all, um, <laughs> I think it's really eye-opening to to hear their background and, and why they did things, especially with the mayor's experience at DreamWorks, right? Um, concept- conceptualizing the whole thing and why he wanted to do it. That was really interesting. What about you? Oh yeah, like uh, I know it, the episode ended up being a longer one, uh, but there was so many great details, like the level of detail that he was able to go into and discuss his seven year long journey about building such a platform. Uh, it's all about uh, the identifying your risk reward ratio, right? Like if if you are going to bet a thousand dollars and if the reward that you're going is also a thousand, you might not be willing to put everything at risk. But then if by just placing a bet of thousand dollars, you're getting like 10K, 10,000 in return. That's where you, you should be investing your money. So that same thing applies for building a platform. Like if it's going to take you seven years, uh, it, it might take you a long enough period of time to earn the rewards. But if you can just rely on a vendor solution, uh, somebody who has gone through all the process, you can get to those rewards really quickly and start adopting these new and modern solutions uh, like right now instead of waiting for seven years. So that was like one key takeaway uh, for me, like instead of spending all the time and resources, I should just look at people who have done this before, uh, gone through the same journey and know what the best practices are for building such a or operating such an as a service platform yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that right figuring figuring that out as an organization is key uh, i think for me what struck me is is just the complexity of the whole thing right uh, obviously seven years it's not an easy thing to do <laughs> um so you know taking uh taking the approach we often look at a problem especially on this podcast from the storage uh, perspective the data management perspective um, we really hone in on those pieces and those data services but when you really think about um, a data service is really just another application any application could be uh, a, a custom built application that isn't a database it's mm -hmm. still going into production it needs a lot of things right it needs the monitoring capabilities it needs uh user friendliness it needs um you know the networking components and and all this other um uh complexity that gets wrapped into this easy button right yes <laughs> that Omer was really uh driving towards so uh, i think it's i think it really showcases just some you know how hard some of these problems are um and and kubernetes you know, to the point he made around uh, staple sets and operators is that those those help with uh, some of the problems you're trying to solve. But, you know, there, you know, Kubernetes doesn't just solve things for you, right? It's a platform for building things like it, it can yeah. give you a, an orchestration layer, but then you still have to figure out all the additional details uh, around any application that you might want to deploy a data service or not. Exactly. So, um, full circle, don't build your own database as a service, <laughs> go and use, <laughs> go and use one. Uh, there's a really cool one that just came out. I'll say that one last time. Um, uh, go take a look at it. Uh, but if you can, and please, uh, uh want to review this podcast, um, do that on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you can review podcasts. Um, we are going to have another uh, guest on the show talking all about how you can use Kubernetes as a team of one uh, for uh, really managing and scaling um, if you don't have a whole team of engineers, which I think may be near and dear to um, many of our listeners. So that'll be exciting. 
it it sure will be like it's not just about people who are getting started uh and like ju- are just that single person on the team but if you are the pioneer like if you want to your organization to adopt kubernetes uh how can you get started with kubernetes on your own and then bring in the larger part of your team so it's, it will be a learning experience for everyone yep all right well bavin until next time yeah that's it app Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast.